himself. He was a fugitive. He was on the run. The train was cutting north through Delaware, the last slave state and the last barrier to freedom. But most people didn't make it that far. And he's not even supposed to be on the train. He, he, he doesn't have the papers he needs. The conductor is coming down the caboose that he's on, and he's pulling everyone's papers, and he's saying, I don't have the right thing. Just, just look calm. Look like you belong. The conductor's getting closer. And he catches up to him, and he says, Do you have your freedmen's papers? He looks up at him, and he says, No. No, I don't. I, I don't usually carry those with me, but I do have these. And he hands him a, a copy of some sailor's papers. And his heart's racing. After all of the trials, after all of his travails to, to get the freedom, everything was hanging on how this one man was going to respond in this one moment. And he takes his papers and he looks down at them and gives them a quick glance. And he hands them back and he moves on. Believe it. He's trying to hold in his emotion in his head. He's wishing the train onward. Just get to New York. Just get to freedom. And the train gets to New York. And he gets off. And he does get to freedom. His name was Frederick Douglass. And when he got off the train, he writes that he looked down at his hands and he thought this. He thought, I have no master. My hands are my own. The only question that stood before him now was what would he do with his freedom? We know what he'll do, but he had no idea. He didn't have connections. He'd never been paid in his life. He didn't even know how much to ask to be paid. Can you imagine that for a second? Having that thought go through your head, looking down at your own hands and thinking for the first time in your life, these are mine. I have no, oh, master, these are my hands. The only question that stands before me is what will I do with my freedom? And this is precisely the question that uh, over 2.5 million slaves are asking in the biblical book of the Exodus. Uh, here's where we're at in the story. Last week we, we learned about the story of Abraham, a, a man whom God called. And he decided that he was going to work through Abraham's family to reach all of the nations. But Abraham's great, 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 great grandchildren were enslaved by the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. And they remained there under the pharaohs in generational slavery for 400 years. That's about as long as the American slave trade was. And then sometime around 1300 BC, God heard their misery. And by many signs and wonders and miracles, he took them on his own kind of underground railroad to a desert mountain called Sinai. And from that mountain, he spoke to them. And this is what he said to them. And you have to catch it because it's, it's with a father's love. He's initiating his relationship with them. He's finally brought his firstborn child back to himself. And he says this. He says, this is in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's saying, I did everything I could to bring you to me. And so now... 2.5 million slaves are wondering, 
What do we do with our freedom? These are our hands. What, what do we do with them? And God says, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what to do. In the next verse, he says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. So God's saying, I freed you from slavery so that you can serve me, obey me, keep my covenant, which really just means follow my laws. So let me just ask you, does that strike you as strange at all? Because it kind of strikes me as strange whenever I read it that God just, there is my quarter, gosh darn it, so you don't put your hands in your pockets. Um, <laughs> does that strike you as strange that God just frees these people only to re-enslave them to himself, right? I mean, the Israelites, they're asking, they're saying, these are my hands, I'm free, and now I have a new master. Isn't that sometimes how we feel about the Christian life? A little bit? Like, yeah, God frees me, but then it's kind of just to re-enslave me again. Yeah, you're freed, but now it's time to obey. And it can kind of make salvation feel a little bit disingenuous, you know? Because real freedom, the freedom we want, it's the freedom to self-determine. It's the freedom to not be told what to do, right? It's not this obey my voice, keep my covenant stuff. It's the freedom to live, the freedom to pursue happiness, the freedom to say what I choose, to own what I choose. It's the freedom of opportunity, the freedom from poverty, the freedom to love who I choose, to love how I choose, the freedom of sexual expression, the freedom to be who I want, to define myself, to be the gender I choose, to be the race I choose, to go into the vocation that I choose, to live where I choose, to grow a cool man bun and put a fedora on it like I want to choose in the future. It's the freedom. My wife's laughing. She gave me permission. It's the freedom to choose to not be defined by other people's dictates. These are my, they're my hands after all, right? I don't have a master to obey. And so the way we honestly feel is like, yeah, it was good. God should have freed them from slavery. That is a good thing. But then he should have let them choose what they wanted to do next, you know? You see, the disconnect that I feel when I'm reading this passage in Exodus, it made me start asking a question. I started thinking, why do I feel this disconnect? Why does my mind and heart go there? And I started to wonder if maybe that my feelings about freedom, what if they're just an American, a cultural perspective on freedom? I was reading a book. This is a handbook for foreigners and immigrants, people who are moving here. And it's kind of to describe the United States to them, our culture to them, things that they wouldn't expect so that they can have a good transitional experience coming into our country. The guy who wrote this, Gary Alton, he's not a Christian. He's just trying to help people move to America. And this is what he writes. He says, Americans are trained to conceive of themselves as separate individuals. When they encounter a person from abroad who seems to them excessively concerned with the opinions of parents, uh, with following traditions, or with fulfilling obligations to others, they assume that that person feels trapped or is weak, and that after living for a long time in the U.S., 
people will be grateful for the opportunity to, you know, do their own thing and have it their own way. Catch this. Americans idealize the individual who prefers an atmosphere of freedom where neither the government nor any other external force or agency dictates what the individual does. They assume incorrectly that people from elsewhere share this same value and self-concept. So let me try to sum this up. He's saying, in America, freedom is about individual choice. And freedom is an inalienable right. And if you try to take that away from me, you're wrong and you're doing something hurtful. And yet what this book showed me is that it turns out this is just one perspective, right? It's a cultural perspective. And maybe we all kind of feel like that, but it's because we were born here and we weren't born in China. So can I just ask you a question? Can we just be intellectually honest enough to at least admit this, that our feelings and our perspective on freedom is exactly that. It's a perspective. It's not a universal truth. I know that I haven't disproved the idea of American freedom, and I certainly haven't said anything about what the Bible has to say about what freedom really is, but can't we at least admit that maybe why we struggle with the idea of God freeing someone and then putting his law on them is because in Exodus we have a different culture's expression and perspective on freedom. And maybe we're just a little bit too narrow-minded to give it a fair shake. Let me ask you this. Do we have the right to force our culture's perspective on freedom onto another culture? Or let me reframe it in a better way. Should we? Should we do that? I mean, when we look at Mizzou, a place that I would say kind of lives by the doctrine and gospel of the freedom to choose... Do we see evidence that this view of freedom ultimately is going to lead us to a good life? Well, I'll share a little bit of you, with you what I've seen on the Maneater in the last few months. Um, this year, so this fall 2015, Mizzou has had an unprecedented 35% increase in mental health care needs. Now, this is coming off a decade of mental health care needs, but this year's been the biggest growth that we've ever had in chronic anxiety and depression. We're really hurting right now. Some of us in here are really hurting right now. Or what about what's been happening on our campus? We have students who are brave enough to come out and protest against the outright and the silent racism that's happening here, and people are coming out and being vicious towards them. People are hurting here. Maybe most tragic to me, and, and I don't say this to shock you, but it is shocking to me. I was reading the most recent statistics um, for sexual violence at Mizzou. And just knowing these numbers, I know there's people in this room who have gone through this, and I'm so sorry. 40% of all women undergraduates by the time they graduate, will have experienced some form of non-consensual sexual contact at this university. And of that 40%, 80% don't feel like they can report anything. Feel like they'll be doubt, like they'll be mocked, like they'll be scorned. We're really hurting, and that's a tragedy. What have we done with our hands? What have we done with our freedom? 
has God really freed us if he just leaves us alone and says, you choose? I mean, what God could have done to the Israelites, he he could have said, okay, guys, you do you, go do your own thing. But the question that we have to ask is, what would they have done with their freedom? And the answer that I'll give you is I think they would have just ended up looking like all of the other nations around them. They wouldn't have been different from them at all. And so you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound that bad. I mean, what were cultures like back in their time? I'll give you a picture uh, of, of ancient Near Eastern life at the time of Israel. Uh, this is King Shalomenser III. That's him. Cool looking guy. Kind of stout. You know, he's doing his thing. He was the emperor of the Assyrian Empire in 931 BC. And he left behind this big black obelisk. And on it, it kind of chronicled the glories of Assyrian life. And so let's just learn a little bit about Assyrian life here. Um, first, uh, he would send out literal headhunters. So that's them. You see the heads down there at the bottom. Um, They'd go out and they would uh, kill the poor, kill the weak. And their their favorite target, though, was foreigners. Foreigners in their country, outside of their country, go get heads. And this is why, if we go to the next slide, uh, it turns out they like doing target practice um, with the heads that they find. And then up there, they would decorate their thrones. It's kind of tough to see with dismembered body parts. Good place, right? And by the way... This isn't a place where you want to break the law, because if you break the law, they'll dismember you, or they'll torture you. That's what this is, is describing all the the ways that they were proud of, all the different tortures they invented. Um, And if you try to rebel against the king, the natural result was impalement. They put that one on there. The glories of Assyria, we're proud of this. Um, Or enslavement, that was another solution to the problems. Um, And by the way, if you had something that a ruler wanted, do you want to know what he would do? You just take it. You loot it. That's, this is the glories of Assyria. We take what we want. Right? And this black obelisk, he has nothing to say of the common practices of child sacrifice, uh, of the human trafficking that occurred um, at the temples with cult prostitution, of the sexual and physical abuse of animals. Moses is sitting on a black obelisk, bragging. So God frees the Israelites and offers American freedom. He says, you do you. What happens next? Is that real freedom? Makes me think of a story I heard on This American Life. A cop saw this van swerving down the road. He pulls it over. He gets out of the car. He knocks on the window. The window goes down and he sees in the passenger seat next to the driver a chimpanzee. He says to the driver, what just happened? And the driver said, well, he he was doing great at first, but he lost control there. (laughs) What? (laughs) A chimpanzee was driving the car. Now, by the definition of American freedom, was the chimpanzee free? Yes. He had the right to choose where that car went. But was he really free? This takes us to the Hebrew perspective. The Israelite perspective on freedom. You see, Hebrews understood that every single person serves a master. Whether it's yourself here in America, or it's a king in the ancient world, everybody has a master. And true freedom, true freedom is serving the good king. So when God comes along and he says, obey my voice and keep my covenant because I'm the good king and I know the way to the good life, God 
doesn't free us to re-enslave us. He freed us so that we can live the good life under the good king because that's real freedom, not the monkey driving the bus. It's kind of funny still, right? Just think about what the Israelite was thinking at this point. He could say, these are my hands. God's freed me to use them for goodness and justice and beauty. We're going to be different than all those other nations out there. In doing so, we're going to change the world. So God says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that's real freedom. (laughs) You shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So what's he going to use his treasured possessions to do? Was going to use them to transform all the earth that is his and all of the peoples that are his. Last week we talked about how God chose Abraham to do what? To reach and bless all of the nations. And God's saying, you're Abraham's children. The mission hasn't changed. We're still going for them. This is how God articulates Israel's mission. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Think for a second about what a priest does. Unless you grew up Catholic, you have no idea what a priest does. That's okay. I'll tell you. Glad you grew up Catholic. You you actually have a reference point for this. This is what a priest does. A priest represents God to the people, and he represents the people to God, right? And so this is what God's saying to 2.5 million slaves. He's saying, you guys as a nation, as my treasured possession, you're going to be my representatives. You're going to display me to the world. You're going to serve them. You're going to pray for them. And you're going to display me to them. You're going to represent my goodness, my justice, and my beauty to the nations. But God's mission through Israel could only be achieved if you obey my voice and keep my covenant. Because it was only if they did that that they would look different from the rest of the nations. And when the nations saw the way they were, the way that they were different, when the nations traveled through Israel, when they traded in Israel, because by the way, Israel was like the ancient world's biggest highway. God put them right on the biggest highway. If they went through Israel, they would see the way that Israel treated their fellow foreigners. No headhunting, but profound care. They'd see Israel's care for the weak, for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow. They'd see Israel's care for the animal and for the laborers no generational slavery here they'd see israel's justice for the powerless they'd see their fair trading practices instead of looting they'd see their protection of women and their protection of children instead of uh, human trafficking and child sacrifice god didn't free them just to re-enslave them he freed them to give them a good life under the good king And if foreigners saw this different nation, they would ask the Israelite, who is your king? And the Israelite would say, my king is God. He's the good king and he's led us to the good life. These are my hands. The Israelite should say, I'll use them for goodness and justice and beauty. The sad truth is that Israel ultimately failed in her calling to do this. They used their hands, they used their freedom to make a society that looked just like the rest of the nations, like Assyria, instead of different from it. But you see, God refuses to give up on his mission. And so Jesus used his divine freedom to put on flesh and serve the very people that he made. 
he obeyed God's voice perfectly. He was different than every person who has ever lived. He set his hands to do goodness and justice and beauty, and he lived the good life. And he died on a cross. And he did so to start a second exodus, a second underground railroad led by this new good king. So that no matter what you've done, who you are, where you've been, you are invited into this new transnational kingdom where we experience real freedom, the good life under the good king. You see, Jesus promises to make us into a different people so that the world will see his goodness, justice, and beauty through us. Peter, one of his followers, he puts it this way. I love this verse. This is what he says. He says, you, this is you guys in the room. You are a chosen race. Sounds like Exodus 19. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are his treasured possession in this room. Why? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him, of Jesus, through your lives, the way you live, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once... You were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Catch this definition of freedom. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. But what's real freedom? Living as servants of God. Living as servants of the king. So when someone looks at Veritas, they should see God's display case, you know, a display case, a trophy case, that's something that, you know, it it shows what someone cares about, what they've done with their life. You know, the dancer's got her dancing awards, the football player's got his trophies and the records he's broken, the Boy Scout's got his merit badge sash with all his accolades and proficiencies, right? Well, Veritas, us here, we're called to be God's display case. We're supposed to be displaying, all of us here, what he cares about, how he spends his time. How he identifies. See, he hasn't re-enslaved us. He set us free so that we can display him to the rest of this campus. That means we need to be different than Mizzou. So how can Veritas be Jesus' display case to this campus? Well, first, I think it means this. I think it means we need to grow in radical hospitality. See, Jesus gave his life to make a home for us. And here's the reality for for most of us in this room, maybe not all of us. Right now is the time in your life when you have the least responsibility and the most time. You might disagree with me, and there's some of you that might not be the case where, but for most of you, that's actually probably true. And some of you guys are using that time to do incredible things, and that's great. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. But a lot of us are using that freedom right now to go on our next Netflix binge. We're using it to watch nonstop sports. We're using it to get a million different resume builders. But we could display Jesus to this campus if we use that time to practice radical hospitality. What if we made it our intention and our goal to invite in foreign exchange students? People who are coming from a different country, they're here, they don't know anyone, they're lonely, they'd love to be invited into an American house. What if we said, yeah, that's a thing I'm going to do. I'm just going to dedicate myself to getting to know some foreign exchange students. Or maybe it means inviting in someone who's struggling with depression and anxiety and walking beside them and saying, you don't have to be alone. Come, be with me. Let's do this together. 
Or maybe radical hospitality is just serving, serving in a ministry like CORE with underprivileged students, or with Young Life, a, a ministry that reached uh, unreached high school students. I think that Jesus is calling us to radical hospitality so that we can display him to Mizzou. So first, radical hospitality. Second, I think Jesus is calling us here to radical purity. We need to learn how to live out our Christian sexual ethic winsomely and non-judgmentally. We need to learn to live our Christian sexual ethic in a way that doesn't make other people feel dirty or guilty or like they can't come here and they can't fit in. We need to live it in precisely the way that makes Veritas feel like a safe place for those who have been hurt by this campus. A safe place for for women who know they can come here and they're not going to find men who are going to try and use them and abuse them and hurt them. They know that they can come here and they're going to find people who aren't going to try and solve their problems, who aren't going to doubt them, who aren't going to look down on them, but are going to mourn, who are going to comfort, who are going to empathize. That's radical purity. And we can reflect Jesus' radical purity to Mizzou. Not just radical hospitality, not just radical purity, but radical group spirituality. See, Christianity isn't just about your private spiritual experiences. It's about our life together. So for some of us, uh, this means that what would it look like for you to get together with your roommates or two or three really close friends and set up a regular time to pray together? That's it. You're just going to pray for one another. You're going to share the things you're thankful for and you're going to share your anxieties and what's agitating you and you're just going to pray for each other. And maybe you can take it a step further Uh, further and you can start praying for Mizzou say God there's injustices happening here King Jesus see those injustices make them right is there a group of people you can pray with what would it look like if Veritas started tiny little prayer movements all over our campus praying for each other praying for Mizzou here's the thing no one gets the get out of jail free card on these things We're all called to be priests. No one gets to say, well, that's their job. We're all called to this radical hospitality. We're all called to radical purity and radical group spirituality. Uh, Recently, Richard Dawkins, he paid for these ads uh, on London's big buses. It's kind of hard to see right there, but this is what it says. It says, there's probably no God. Thank you, Richard. Uh, (laughs) Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. What if someone put that sign on our big black and yellow buses here on campus? What do you think people on campus would think if they saw that here? It's my prayer that they would shake their heads. No. No, that can't be true. Because I know Sarah, and she volunteers hours and hours to underprivileged kids, and her sacrifice shows that her God is real. No, no, that that can't be true because I know John and I've seen the way that he honors and respects his girlfriend's wishes and body. And when I see the way he loves her and puts her first, it shows me that his God's real. No, no, that can't be true because I know Jeremy and I've seen the way that Jeremy prays for his friends, the way he walks with people who are anxious and depressed and he empathizes and he cares for them. When I see his hospitality and his spirituality, I know that his God is real. No, that can't be true. Because the people I've met who follow Jesus, 
they're different. They take their hands and they use them for goodness and justice and beauty. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And as they do, I'm going to force all of us to do something weird. Embrace it. I want you to take your hands out of your pockets. I'm not going to make you hold them up. No, don't hold them up. I want you to take out your hands, and I want you genuinely, as weird as it is, I just want you to look at your hands for one second. Then you can look back up if that's too weird. Just look at your hands. God gave you those hands. What are you going to do with them? God gave us all of our hands to use together. What are we going to do with them? I think that he's calling us to radical hospitality, radical purity, and radical group spirituality. Yesterday, um, I was sitting in the office, and I was getting really overwhelmed by giving this talk. And the reason why I was getting overwhelmed giving this talk was because I was just doing what I told you to do. I was looking at my hands. And as I was looking at them, I I saw my own hypocrisy. I see that I fall short of hospitality and purity and spirituality and so many things that God calls me to do in my life. And I'm sitting there thinking, I failed the exact same way that Israel fails. So how can I get up and teach all of these students about this. And then Jesus reminded me, he said, you know what, you don't earn my love and your obedience isn't gonna keep my love. I chose you and I loved you and I picked you for my treasure possession before you ever did a lick of obedience and I promise you nothing can ever change that. But it's precisely because I love you that I want you to obey me because I'm the good king and I want to lead you to the good life. He said, I love you and I love the world and I want to use you to change the world, to reach it through you. So when we look down at our hands, we have to ask, what are we going to do with our freedom? The good king Jesus, he's looking for servants He's looking for people to use their hands for goodness, justice, and beauty. He's leading us in the good life. And if we follow him, the zoo will never be the same. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, you asked for our hands so that you could use them for your purposes, your mission for Mizzou. We give them to you for a moment and then I know I pull them away because it's hard. So Father, forgive us. Jesus, King Jesus, give us strength to use our hands for goodness, for justice, for beauty. Give us strength to use our hands for true freedom, which is serving you. Jesus, we can only do it if you give us the grace and we can only do it because you have already set us free. It's your name that we pray.